Thank you, George. Well, welcome everybody to the last day of the LSE Literary Festival, and I'm especially pleased to be here to introduce uh, Dr. Claude Morgan, an uh, uh, old friend of mine, I'm happy to say, and a very distinguished classicist from Brazen's College, Oxford. Uh, he has a special interest in uh, particularly in Roman literature, I think, for them, uh, Virgil, Ovid, Horace, and a particular passion for the power of metrical form, which you can read all about in one of his earlier books. But we're here today to talk about his new book, which is coming out later this month, uh, The Buddhas of Bamiyan. And uh, what we're particularly keen to hear today is about uh, Bamiyan as a, a cultural center, uh, a cultural melting pot, mm -hmm. uh, which will throw up and fill many surprises. Right, thank you very much. Well, um, I need to get to the other microphone. I hope, that's, uh, I hope that is true. The big difference between the book that I wrote a while back on metrical form and, uh, and the book on the Buddhas of Bamiyan is the one on metrical form has actually been published. Um, <laughs> and the one on Bamiyan hasn't yet, although they tell me it's quite soon. Um, that is a point of difference between myself and, and Paddy. In other respects, we're rather spookily similar, you know, far beyond the, the shirts. But in one major respect different, he has published a book on uh, a gateway uh, to India on the, on the Khyber Pass and is available to, to uh, purchase a fascinating book as well. Um, and uh, I encourage you to do so. Although it's very kind of him to um, introduce me because he's since, since he's worked on Afghanistan has moved into very different areas, in particular in respect to uh, relation to um, investment in post-conflict Africa and that kind of thing. So it brings a very wide set of expertises to things, something which I probably can't claim myself. Okay, so... Um, yes, I am a, a classicist, and um, a classicist who, who works particularly on Roman poetry, really. So, so some of the most sort of formal and ahistorical aspects of, of, of the classical world. But probably because I just uh, finished a, a very, very technical book on um, something very, very Roman indeed, Roman metrical form, I um, found myself thinking about something entirely different. Now, one of the reasons I ended up going to Bamiyan and other parts of Afghanistan will become a bit clearer later on, just in passing. It was because um, another friend of mine um, is, uh, is important in mine clearing and clearance of unexploded ordnance in, in Afghanistan, and he insisted that um, the only possible sensible way to celebrate my 40th birthday was uh, to do it on the river Amadaria or, or uh, Oxus in northern Afghanistan. And when you're 40, those kinds of arguments make perfect sense. And uh, that's what I did. Uh, but in the process, developed a, a fascination for this, for, for this particular location, for Barmian. Okay, so I'm talking about it because I'm writing a book about it. Um, it's um, surprisingly unfamiliar to many um, people, this place. So you'll forgive me. I'm sure I'm amongst experts here, but you'll forgive me if I just do a little bit of uh, fundamental background uh, before we start. Bamiyan Al is a is a is a place. Um, the geography of which, uh, the topography of which, is very much its its destiny, and there'll be uh, images to um, illustrate that point a, a little later. But the fundamental reason why Bamiyan is so well known today, and Bamiyan is more celebrated today than it has ever been and its existence before. Its fame across the world is greater than ever before. But the reason is, ironically, because its great monument, the central monument, uh, monuments of Bamiyan, the Buddhas, the two 
massive Buddhas, uh, the 55 meter Buddha on the uh, left here, and the 38 meter Buddha on the uh, right were destroyed in 2001. Um, okay, so destroyed by the uh, Taliban uh, regime, which had control of of Bamiyan at that uh, point in early 2001, destroyed presumably with some kind of input from the grouping that was very influential. Um, uh, it had a great influence over the Taliban leadership at that, that stage. Um, Al-Qaeda, names like Osama bin Laden. Over time, it has seemed that their influence over this act was, um, was, was quite significant. Okay, these are, these are issues I will come back to. But first, what I promised before, a bit of geography. Now, this is geography in the broader sense. This is the um, ethno-linguistic or an ethno-linguistic map of Afghanistan and its wider region. And each of these colours represents a different uh, ethnic group, and there is simplification happening here um, quite, um, uh, quite clearly. Down at the bottom, I hope you can see that. That might make it slightly easier. Um, is a topographical map of Afghanistan. And the most significant thing is the belt of mountains that moves across from east to west, in the middle of which is Bamiyan. Now, I'm not sure you can see that map well enough to appreciate that these ethnic groups map very um, neatly, um, in geographical terms, not in actual terms, but map very neatly onto those geographical features of Afghanistan. Afghanistan has mountains, um, it has plains, uh, and uh, mountains here, and the sort of landscape that we're regrettably familiar with from news reports down in the down in the uh, south. It's m made this location a crossroads, to use a, a cliche, but it's a, an appropriate cliche in, in this case, between um, lands to the south towards the Indian subcontinent, lands to the north into Central Asia, potentially uh, lands to the east of China and into Iran on this side. Now, any place which, like Bamiyan, occupies a critical strategic location in the middle of the mountains potentially is of immense importance in controlling movement between these two places, which is not to say that other places don't also have great strategic importance, like the um, Khyber Pass or indeed the various crossings of the Indus further to the, uh, further to the east. But that, the fundamental importance of Bamiyan is that it occupies this geographical, this, this um, important geographical um, location. Okay, now, a place that is a crossroads between India, Central Asia, Iran, potentially even China, is going to be a place which experiences uh, at least three things. It experiences um, intense trade um, at various times in its existence. It experiences immense violence repeatedly in its existence, um, because it is so important, so strategic. Um, and it experiences a very rich cultural encounter constantly. Because there are movements of people in all those directions. They might be violent movements of people. They might be religiously motivated uh, movements of people. They might be um, commercially motivated movements of people. 
But at any rate, what you're always going to find, um, and what you always do find in Barmian, is exactly the kind of thing that we're interested in uh, in this um, at, at LSE over these days, which is the meeting of cultures, um, the, the, the transfer of cultures. Um, at its heyday in Barmian, as a Buddhist site, um, there were Iranian peoples worshipping an Indian religion. So people from the West, as it were, uh, celebrating a religion that had come from India, Buddhism. And that is about as simple as it gets in Barmyan. Generally much, much more complicated than that. Now, this makes it interesting um, to write a book on the Buddhists of Barmyan. It also makes it very difficult to write a book on the Buddhists of Barmyan because the history of Barmyan, like the history of Afghanistan in, in general, is hideously complicated. Or that might be wonderfully complicated, depending on what time of the day it is and uh, how far I got with the, with the chapter. But it seems to me that one of the ways in which we can counter um, this kind of statement, uh, so this is the edict of um, Mullah Omar to the effect, to the effect that um, remnants of non-Islamic um, religion in Afghanistan had to be destroyed, including the Buddhists of Barmya. One of the ways in which we can resist simplifying statements like this is by insisting on how intrinsically complex a place like Afghanistan is and how intrinsically complex this meeting of cultures uh, has made of it. To summarise what, um, what he said um, here, and there's only one um, item out of uh, a number which sort of contextualised the destruction of the Buddhism in, in 2001, but he essentially says that if there is any uh, monument which is um, capable of being uh, worshipped um, then it is incompatible with um, Islam and it must be destroyed. It is an extremely tendentious position, um, this, even within, um, even within quite radical um, Islamist circles. This is potentially a very uh, extreme uh, position. Um, a, a quite famously, a, um, a, a group of of Islamic scholars, including um, a chap um, called uh, Al Karadawi, who's been somewhat um, controversial in, in this country on a couple of times, went to went to Kandahar to try and persuade Mullah Omar not to go ahead with this. Al Karadawi is not a shrinking liberal by any, by any means, and yet was convinced and clear that this was not an Islamic thing to do. It is, of course, terribly, terribly simplifying um, to suggest that, that there is such a such an extreme contrast between that which is Islamic and that which um, is not um, and one of the things I hope I can communicate with some of the other images I show you is actually how fascinatingly creative and complex the encounter was between Islam and the Buddhas of Bambi because the truth is that the Buddhas of Bamiyan were there for 1,200 years in an Islamic context. Uh, 1,200 years when they were not destroyed. And far from being destroyed, uh, a, a fascinating culture of appreciation of the Buddhas developed in um, Islamic times. Okay, so in various ways, I'm talking about the Buddhas of Bamiyan as a fascinating example of the meeting of 
cultures, and a fascinating example of the precise opposite of this, that when one culture um, encounters another, it must destroy what it, what it sees. Right, okay, now, complicated history. This isn't going to help at all, <laughs> but it's a timeline, okay? Um, and these are some of the things that I'm going to uh, refer to as, as we move through. Now, you never even see this screen again. If I could just leave this up somewhere, it would be quite kind of useful. You never even see it again. So everybody has to memorize. Um, so here, pretty crucial moments. When these um, uh, uh, statues were sculpted in the first place, and it's one of the ironies, and one of the many ironies about the destruction of the Buddhas, is that it's, um, it's, it's made Bamiyan very famous. Um, it has brought funding uh, to Bamiyan, funding to archaeology in Bamiyan. That's not uh, a given, of course. So a lot of the most um, interesting and informative work on the dating and the construction of the Buddhas has been done since 2001. It's been done um, uh, in the fragments or with the fragments of the, of the Buddhas. So lots of um, carbon dating, ready carbon dating in particular. Which has brought us to, to this date for the carving of the, the smaller, but not very small, smaller, <laughs> 550 AD, 615, the larger Buddha. Um, when I say the Islamic era begins, this is, this is when Islamic dating uh, begins, when um, the prophet, um, uh, uh, flight of the prophet um, happens. Um, it's in this long period, 750 to 900, that Barmian is converted to. Um, Islam. And in between, we have a visit from a, a Chinese monk, Zhuang Sun, who we'll hear from in uh, a little bit, who rather fascinatingly visits Bamiyan in its um, Buddhist pomp, and of course hasn't the faintest idea of the developments that are happening to the West that will completely transform the culture of Bamiyan. He heads off back to the East after a while, and, and, and with history kind of coming behind him like a, like a wave. Um, 900. Um, uh, I will mention a group of people, a group of um, very powerful viziers and bureaucrats in the, um, in the capital of the Arab Empire at uh, Baghdad, the Barmakids. I'll also mention this chap, Al-Biruni, one of the most important Islamic medieval um, intellectuals. This person who nobody will have heard of, but he's got a nice anecdote. Um, the last Islamic voice we'll hear from there, because then we'll start hearing about the British coming to um, uh, Barmian in the uh, middle of the 19th century, which is the point when Barmian becomes a famous world monument. Possibly the point before 2001 when Barmian experienced its greatest uh, period of, of, um, of uh, celebrity. <laughs> okay, right, so before we get to um, Tuan Sung, some broader contextualization. I talked about Bamiyan itself as a place within the mountains um, that controls access. We need to appreciate where that, where the sort of wider context is taking uh, people or where they are coming from. I mentioned Baghdad already. Chang'an is where um, Zhuangzhan uh, comes from. Um, the culture of Afghanistan at all periods um, of its um, history, but particularly in antiquity, so even further back than um, the, the time when the Buddhas of Bamiyan were constructed, is a remarkable mixture 
of influences, uh, of homegrown uh, influences, of course, but also influences from India, from Iran, from Central Asia, and from China. Um, and you may have um, uh, had some access to this material, had some sight of this material. This was some of the stuff that came in the uh, travelling uh, exhibition from, of material from the museum, uh, the National Museum of Afghanistan in, um, in Kabul, uh, which is on sort of a perpetual tour around the world because it's not uh, secure enough in Kabul to show the stuff, which is tragic in a sense, but also good for, for showing us how remarkably rich the culture of Afghanistan has, has been. Uh, two items that are randomly chosen. Um, come from a, an archaeological site at Begram, uh, which is probably more famous as a dirty Greek American base where uh, dubious things are done with um, captives. Bagram, amazing what difference a, uh, an E and an A can make. It suddenly becomes an archaeological, archaeological site. Um, this was dug in the 1930s by French archaeologists. And they found these two sealed rooms, which were probably, <coughs> probably contained the, um, the wares of a, uh, of a merchant, something like that. And amongst other things, they found ivory statues from uh, India. The only close equivalent to these statues was actually found in Pompeii, uh, another Indian ivory statue. But ivory very rarely um, survives from antiquity, so it's a very vulnerable substance. So from India there, a, uh, a, an easily recognisable Greek uh, head of um, Silenus uh, there, which you know, might have been made somewhere in the vicinity of, um, of Begram, north of Kabul, more likely was uh, imported from, uh, from um, the Mediterranean. Um, just to broaden that idea a bit, and we're talking, we're talking about the period before the, the construction of the Buddhists, so the early centuries AD uh, and, and the last centuries um, BC. Here we have um, a sculptor, sculpture from the site of Hadda, which is near uh, Jalalabad in uh, eastern Afghanistan. This is the side of a Buddha, just the edge of a Buddha. And here is an image of one of the Buddha's uh, companions, Vajrapani. Um, but a classicist doesn't see Vajrapani, a classicist sees Hoki. It's a very clear representation of Hoki. But something quite fascinating has happened that a, um, a uh, as essentially as a consequence of the uh, conquest of Alexander the Great, Greek culture, a Greek political influence, a Greek cultural, Greek political authority has been established in this in this area, really rather momentarily in Afghanistan and and, and, and modern um, Pakistan. Even when that political influence has broken down, artistic styles um, persist and uh, continue to have an effect. Uh, well into the uh, early centuries AD. Um, here's a rather uh, earlier item. It's a coin of a, a Greek king called Menander, I and mean, he tells you in Greek that his name is Menander, that he's a king, also a saviour as well there. And then on the other side tells you in a local language that his name is Menander and he's a king and saviour. In the middle of it, he's got an image of the goddess Athena. And this image of Athena is modelled on a, a statue in Pella in Macedonia. Um, it's uh, effectively a token of Alexander. Now, this chap is minting his coins in um, Afghanistan and Pakistan about 150 
18, maybe a bit later, uh, BC, maybe a bit <coughs> later. So 150 years after Alexander the Great, but he's still saying, I am Alexander, and I am a Greek, but I'm also having to make big compromises with the local uh, culture as well. Now, people are using, Greeks are using this image of Athena, the Alexandrian Athena, for years and years and years after Ananda. There's a chap called Zoilus, who's minting coins in about 1 AD. And he's got a very broken down Athena on his coins. And then, you know, you have Scythians who continue to use Athena on their coins. And you can't see this at all, but um, this is a, an image from a book by Oral Stein, the great Central Asian archaeologist. He found um, at a place called Nia, which is in the Turin Basin, right over here, he found a seal with the same image of Athena on it from the early centuries AD. So somehow in this amazing, I mean, the Afghanistan, Farmian is the melting pot of melting pots, of course, but all around this area, these movements between India, Central Asia, the Mediterranean, and China, creating this sort of fascinating blend of, of, um, of uh, cultural artefacts. Okay, let's, um, let's bring in China a bit more uh, directly and get to um, <coughs> Bamiyan a bit more directly as well. This is um, Tuan Sang, whose name I haven't given anywhere, which wasn't really useful of me, was it? Oh, I did. Earlier on, didn't I? Sorry. Um, he is um, an absolute gift to any historian of, of Bamiyan because he actually arrives there uh, in the fairly early 7th century. In 629, he goes on a... a, a he, he's, he's getting frustrated with uh, doctrinal uh, debates uh, within uh, Chinese Buddhism. And he, what he thinks that if he goes to India, it will all get sorted out. Uh, he'll find the text that he needs and everything will be okay. And it does seem to have some positive effect on him. He, he works all his way all the way around from Chang'an down via Bamiya into India, spends quite a lot of time in India, and then works his way all the way back again. Huge numbers of, of, um, of manuscripts and becomes a very central figure in the transmission of Buddhist manuscripts to, uh, to China. Um, he describes the Buddha, and he described Bamiyan at, at a great length in its heyday as a, as a Buddhist uh, location, and here, he's, um, here he is um, describing uh, the Buddhas. To the northeast of the royal city, on the side of the mountain, there's a stone statue of the standing Buddha, which is 140 to 150 feet high, this is the taller Buddha, a dazzling gold colour and resplendent with ornamentation of precious substances. To the east of it is a monastery built by an earlier king of the country. East of this is a standing image of the Shakyamuni. Buddha, who is the kind of historical uh, Buddha, the Buddha of this um, epoch, um, more than 100 um, feet high, made of brass, the pieces of which have been cast separately and then assembled to make up the statue. Now, something's gone rather badly wrong with this description of the uh, smaller Buddha there, but what we think is that um, since he's given an account of the larger Buddha, which is you know, almost impossible to square with, even with what survived in up until 2001, <coughs> we have to factor in a massive amount of decoration of these monuments, a, a, a huge amount of embellishment. Um, we know that uh, up until 2001 the statues had, had a, a coating of clay which carried, had obviously carried paint. Um, but there are also indications on the statue of much more elaborate 
structures attached to the um, statue, which would have given a, a sort of a more realistic impression of clothing and these kinds of things. They would have been really remarkable um, statues um, uh, originally, probably terribly garish and, and, uh, and to, to, to certain modern tastes distasteful, but very impressive um, stuff. Now, so presumably he looks at the smaller Buddha and it is so um, brilliantly decorated that he actually doesn't think it's made of stone at all. He thinks it's made of, of, of brass. Okay, precious, precious evidence on its own account, but also a, a remarkable indication that Barmyan was a place to which um, a Chinese monk might have come. He's not the only one to come uh, through Barmyan. A, a Korean Chinese monk comes through Barmyan about 100 years later and is a, is a less interesting informant than, um, than Tuan Tsang, but, but uh, has some very interesting things to say as well. Now, this image is here. This is an image of um, Tuan Tsang. It comes from the British Museum. It's a silk print, a um, uh, uh, Japanese 19th century silk uh, hanging print. And what it um, illustrates is what happened to the figure of Tuan Tsang, because he became a figure of um, folk. Uh, he became a folk hero, essentially. And he he um, is a central figure in a, uh, a classic Chinese novel, which is referred to as Journey to the West, or Monkey. Um, and Monkey was, a, was turned into a, a, um, a TV show in the, in the 70s, which was very familiar as well. So. Um, a how lucky are we that, that this, this tremendously important individual who's kind of like the equivalent of the Chinese equivalent of Ibn Battuta or Marco Polo, he's the great sort of traveller of uh, the east of this period. There are plenty of great Chinese travellers, of course. Um, but how lucky he, that uh, he did come through Bangladesh uh, and was able to tell us things. Okay, right now if we getting longer and longer away, isn't it? But if we can go back to that time um, line that I provided before. Um, Tuan Sang comes through Bamiyan in 629, we think, and then he sort of he spends a long time, spends about 16 years, I think, in, in uh, India, and then heads out again. Um, <coughs> around about the time he is leaving India, the first um, Arab soldiers are uh, leaving the subcontinent. The first Arab soldiers are setting foot on what's modern Afghanistan. It actually takes a very long time, though, for Bamiyan specifically and Afghanistan in general to be converted to Islam. And there are many reasons um, for that. Um, one of the major reasons is that um, the, the Arabic incursions into um, Afghanistan were not, um, were not campaigns of conversion. That wasn't the point of the campaign, um, primarily. Um, another reason is that um, uh, by the time that Muslim forces reach Afghanistan, they have developed a system of um, encompassing non-Islamic peoples that um, uh, should have been the envy of the medieval world um, more generally. Um, it was entirely possible, and in fact entirely normal, um, to be a non-Islamic uh, resident inhabitant of um, Islamic lands, although there were taxes um, to pay to, 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 to ensure your, your, right to, your right to worship. Now, this explains, if you recall, I was very vague about when Barmyan became Islamic. There's a period of time between the sort of mid-8th century and sort of the beginning of the 10th century when there are lots of indications on the one hand that Barmyan is Islamic, 
um, lots of um, warlords are going through and, and saying, I have converted Bamiyan to Islam. The, the giveaway is that they keep saying <laughs> time and time and again. Um, but on the ground, there's lots of indication equally that Buddhist art continues to be made and that um, Buddhist, Buddhist worship continues. Particularly, I mean, potentially even into um, the 10th um, century, um, in these side valleys that there are. There's the main valley of, of Bamiyan, and there are side valleys, um, Kakrak and, um, and Fuladi, where, where it seems that um, caves with uh, Buddhist cave paintings continue to be painted really very, very late indeed. Now, another indication that the... the as it were, the transfer of Bamiyan from Buddhism to Islam was a fairly um, uh, slow and interesting and potentially even friendly um, one, is the remarkable insights into Buddhist Bamiyan that we get from early Islamic sources, and one early Islamic source in particular. This is an incredible text, the furiest of is like a, a collection of what you should read if you're a 10th century well-read man in Baghdad. Um, I don't think that makes it sound as fascinating as I, I can make it sound. I mean, it's, just, it's, it's a goldmine. Within it, there's a text which we're told was um, written by a man um, who was sent out by one of the Bama kids, one of these... Um, uh, one of these administrators in Baghdad was sent to India to find out about the medicine uh, of India which is always a very great interest of the Islamic uh, world um, but also the religious practices of India um, and what we get in this uh, account amongst many other fascinating things is a description of Bamiya um, but what's fascinating about this inscription, uh, this description is that it adopts the point of view of a Buddhist worshipper, or at least I think it does. This is written in Arabic, but well, you can agree or not. The people of India, i.e. non-Muslims, go on pilgrimage to these two idols, bearing with them offerings, incense, and fragrant wood. If, if the eye should fall upon them from a distance, a man would be obliged to lower his eyes, overawed by them. If he is lacking in attention or careless when he sees them, it is necessary for him to return to a place from which he cannot view them and then to approach them, seeking them as an object for his attention with reverence for them. That, that seems to me a, a description of the religious meaning, which at least touches upon the religious meaning of these Buddhist monuments. And as I say, it is written in Arabic, and it's a remarkable, remarkable text. Um, almost as remarkable as the person that uh, commissioned it. Um, the person that commissioned it is, was Yahya al-Barmaki. Okay? His son, Jafar, um, is one of the most, well, must be the most famous of the Barmakids because he's, um, he's become the great villain in, uh, in various sort of descriptions of, of uh, or various representations of medieval Baghdad. So if we've watched the uh, classic film, um, uh, The Thief of Baghdad, we will know that Jafar, played by Conrad White, in extremely camp style, um, uh, but also in Aladdin, the, the less classic Disney movie, which is most of its uh, most of its uh, material from from this film. Um, Jafar has become uh, the evil vizier. Well, the original Jafar was um, a you know 
no doubt he has his evil moments, but he was a, um, a, a, a close uh, colleague of Harun al-Rashid, and uh, a famous man, a famous man as a, an administrator, and like the rest of his family, also a great patron of poetry, of science, of intellectual things generally. Yeah, it explains why he's asked a man to go to India to, tell, to, 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 to get information about medicine and so on. Another thing that explains why the Barmakids are so interested in this kind of stuff is to do with their name. Um, Yahya's grandfather, I think, was called Barma, which is in fact a sort of Arabicization of uh, the Sanskrit word uh, Pramukh, which means effectively abbot or leader of a Buddhist um, uh, institution. Um, let's cut to the chase. This chap's grandfather, this chap's great-grandfather, was the abbot of a Buddhist, an enormous Buddhist monastery at Bach, across the mountains from, from Bami. And that is one of the reasons why the Barmakids were such a, a remarkable cultural force in Baghdad. They, they represented in themselves uh, a group of powerful people who um, sat on the boundary between, however you want to put it, Indian culture and is, Islamic uh, culture. I mean, the Barmakids were also very active in bringing Greek uh, knowledge into the Islamic world as well. Okay. I mean, it's a, a I'm talking about this, of course, because I want to I want to complicate this idea that there's any necessary contradiction between necessary contradiction in the Buddhas of Bamiyan being in an Islamic place. That's what what um, the Taliban and, and other ideologues were trying to tell us, and what too many of us have actually believed uh, as well. And uh, it's certainly not true at the beginning of the history of the place. Okay, just continuing with this uh, a little uh, longer. Um, excuse this, not very brilliant image. This is an Afghan uh, stamp from about 73, um, celebrating the uh, millennium of uh, Al Biruni, um, a very remarkable intellectual. Um, from my point of view, from the point of view of what I'm talking about, particularly remarkable because of his interest in in India, in, his interest in the non-Islamic places beyond. Um, the edge of the um, Islamic world. And he writes a great text called um, India, which is still of, of fascinating interest. He also writes a, a text on the Buddhas of Bamiya, which would be fascinating if a single word of it survived. Unfortunately, it, it, it doesn't. Al-Biruni is closely associated with the court of uh, Mahmud of Ghazan, uh, a court in modern Afghanistan at Ghazan. And Mahmud is considered to be the great destroyer of idols. He's somebody that Mullah Omar made a great effort to identify himself with. What I am doing in Bamiyan is what Mahmud did as he encountered India. Then Mahmud did indeed go on you know, really quite dramatic and destructive raids into, into India. But it's much more complicated. Because at his court, this character wrote about India, wrote about those survivals of Indian culture understood as, as non-Islamic culture, like the Buddhas of 
farmyard. Now, undoubtedly, wrote about them um, partly on the basis of the information which had come back to Razna with, with Mahmud's um, conquest, with Mahmud's prisons, no doubt. But conquest is always a two-way thing, and the passage of knowledge, in particular the transmission of knowledge, is always definitely a, a two-way thing. It is deeply interesting and, 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 and very complicating of any straightforward attempt to sort of draw a, a strict line between the Islamic and the, and the Buddhist or the Indian. That's one of the greatest texts on Indian thought, albeit, you know, slightly outdated now, but still uh, a great uh, starting point. It was written by somebody at Mahmoud's. Cool. Okay, rather less um, intellectual, but still rather nice, um, I think. And um, I'm, very, I'm very attached to this um, text, Sultan Muhammad's uh, Maj al Rai, because um, I spent a rather tra traumatic afternoon in the British Library, my incredibly rudimentary Persian, um, trying to work out what he was saying. And it reached a point where I could just about make out the word Barmian, so I took it to a friend who knew his Persian better. And, uh, did it for me. Um, yeah, it's not quite true, but pretty much. Um, this is a, um, uh, I mean, the title of the book means, means sort of a collection of, of, of treasures, I think, uh, a collection of wonders. Um, um, and it's, uh, in general, it's a, it's, a, it's a book written for a, a, a local potentate in, in Balkh, again, north of the, of, uh, the mountains that Barmian is in the middle of. Uh, lots of sort of miraculous fountains. Um, and not awfully interesting until suddenly it all gets very personal and he recalls a moment which he dates very precisely, 935 when he was actually with a um, uh, a, uh, a caravan travelling um, from Balkh over the mountains towards Kabul uh, where the weather was appalling and he, uh, he and his uh, caravan took, took refuge under one of the Buddha uh, one of the, the Buddha um, alcoves and, uh, and the other under the other. Now this chap is a, is a, is a mufti, he's a, he's, a, he's a religious man. Um, he's just amazed by these statues. He's also rather grateful to these statues that they uh, saved him from the worst that the Hindu Kush can throw at you in uh, climatic terms, which is, uh, which is considerable. Um, it's very suggestive of how thoroughly these monuments were kind of just subsumed into the world of Islam that he could talk of it, talk of these in these, talk of them in these terms. Let's try another approach to that before I get onto the the Brits. So I have to put that in because it's one of my favourite um, uh, photos um, that I've taken. I mean. Um, this is a place called uh, Bandi Amir, which is uh, the Afghanistan's first and thus far only um, national park. It's been waiting to become a national park. There were plans to make it a national park before everything went horribly wrong in Afghanistan. It's now been made a national park. Let's hope um, it can remain um, a place that people would want to visit. It's an incredible collection of sort of mineral lakes, and that isn't the colour of that water, isn't it? My poor photography. That's that's really what it looked like. It looks like um, these sort of tall red cliffs all around. Now, in relation to what I'm talking about, 
what's very interesting about this landscape is the way that it has um, been the way that it's been sort of taken up into um, a local folklore. The people in this area around um, uh, Barmyam and then further to the uh, west here at Bandi Amir are um, Shi, Shia um, Muslim. They are particularly keen on Ali, the cousin and son-in-law of the, of, uh, the prophet. And there are lots of local myths in which um, Ali performs essentially like sort of a St. George um, figure. Typically what, what happens is that Ali will, will come along, there will be pagans. Uh, he he sort of defeats the local king and converts that local king to Islam and converts the people along with him. Uh, the local king will be a tyrant here because they're happy to get rid of him. And all of these lakes at uh, Bandi Amir are associated with a particular myth of, um, of Ali. So are the Buddhas at Bamiya as well. Um, there's a uh, fabulous myth to the effect that, that they represent the last pagan king of Bamiyan, the taller Buddha, and his wife, Sal Saland Shah. Now that may be, you know, we could dismiss that as a local storytelling, but it seems to me what's happening there is the full and thorough appropriation of this monument. The landscape, I mean the people of Bamiyan, of course, have, have become Muslim. I mean, other things have happened ethnically in this area that I have not time to talk about. But the people are Muslim. The landscape has become Islamic um, by virtue of these stories that are told about the landscape. The Buddhists themselves become Islamic. Another fabulous story about the local story about the Buddhists is that they're, they're what the survivors of the flood did. Um, when the flood subsided, the, uh, the earth was still a little malleable, you know, still a bit down. So they carved these statues from the still sort of slightly malleable rock, and then they sort of hardened into the statue. That seems to represent a, a complete uh, assimilation of, 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 um, of these uh, monuments into a, an entirely different culture from the one that uh, created. Right, okay, let's move on to the, um, the British. Because they do their own thing as well. We've had Muslims talking about um, uh, Bamiyan. We then have this kind of flood of Christians. Um, and it's important that they are Christians. I'll explain to some extent how they get there in a second. It's also important that they're classicists. Um, I mean, it's always important when somebody is a classicist. <laughs> of course, you've got to be very careful if you discover that. Um, but it's important that they have a particular, in other words, they have a particular educational conditioning that they bring um, to this area. But let's, let's talk about the, the, the history of things uh, a little bit um, first. This is a, an image of a place called um, Shariza Hawk, which is um, at the kind of eastern end of the Bamiyan Valley, a really remarkable um, castle on high cliffs. They're not quite as high as represented in this image. There's a certain amount of exaggeration happening in this image. But this is a, um, a, 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 an image after a drawing by this character, Lieutenant John Sturt. And you can date it. Well, I can date it. I can explain if you want precisely. It's the morning of August 23rd, 1840. And he and a friend, uh, he and a colleague, 
have been surveying the passes uh, in the vicinity of Bombay. We're in very much in the middle of the British involvement in Afghanistan that's now generally known as the First Afghan War, or the First Anglo-Afghan War. And uh, knowing who and how um, anti-British forces can come through the mountains is very, very critical indeed. Okay, so that's what John Sturt is, is up to. Um, he's bewitched by the landscape at the same time, and he's quite a talented artist, so he makes images. Now, to anticipate things, John Sturt will die in one of the most famous and notorious imperial debacles. Um, he dies when the British army and all the British, all the followers of the British army um, have to make their way through the passes from Kabul to Jalalabad uh, when they've basically, basically been forced to leave um, Afghanistan or leave, leave Kabul at any rate. They don't get through the passes. Well, one character gets through the passes famously, only, only, only him. The rest are massacred. Not quite all the rest, but John Sturt, the author of this rather bewitching image, dies of a, an abdominal wound in agony in the passes between Kabul and Jalalabad. Now, I'm not just saying that for you know, mere purposes of drama. I'm saying it because this is a simultaneously an entire, you know, beautifully pastoral image. Yet everything about it is militarised. In that, so you look behind the scenes, and it's all terribly military. These are these are soldiers. They've all got their um, surveying equipment. Here is um, the valley of um, below Sharzahar. Today, it's another like excellent um, photos. And I think it does um, communicate what I was trying to communicate. How stunningly beautiful the place was. It was the most beautiful place I've ever been in my life without question. I was thinking that at the time and thinking in two weeks' time I'll sort of got some perspective and uh, went through that. I've still never been anywhere like it. This electric green um, uh, valley bottom and these red cliffs on the side. God, just wonderful. It was a delight to discover at a later point a crazy writer called Francis Wilford, writing about 1800 who on the basis of very peculiar reading of, um, of his sources concluded that essentially that this valley below Sharon was in fact the Garden of Eden. <laughs> um, I discovered that after I sort of reached the conclusion that it kind of looks like the Garden of Eden, terrestrial paradise and stuff. If it is the Garden of Eden, um, well, we know all about the Garden of Eden and how evil is, is, is present within it. All of these close up, they all mind. all have been mind. This is a, an intensely strategic place. Here is a, a deminer a few years ago working on the rather up here, moving all the uh, mines and unexploded ordnance. Climb to the very top up there, and there's a, a gun emplacement, uh, anti aircraft gun always with Afghanistan but and always with Bamiyan but particularly um, for me this time uh, sorry this time in the 1840s and also this time in 2010 there's this sort of constant potential for violence uh, it sort of makes the beauty more more intense or more compelling I okay the more important point is though this is strategic um, again Bamiyan is is a, an intensely strategic uh, place. The, the British are desperately trying to um, 
establish a, um, a, a boundary which they can hold against the encroaching um, Russian Empire. Meanwhile, the Russians are equally paranoid about something that's never really going to happen, and are trying to establish their um, their sort of strong points on the other side. Barmyon becomes terribly critical as a consequence. That's the main reason why, at this period in the 1830s and the 1840s, we have lots of Western witnesses to the place. Um, Alexander Burns, the most um, well, the best writer of them all, uh, probably um, also potentially the least moral. Um, of the wall, that makes him an interesting uh, uh, person, uh, a, a, a sex symbol in his day, as you can tell. Um, <laughs> who could resist? Um, uh, other, so there's Alexander Burns' name down there. Um, other visitors, probably the most um, commendable of the British visitors was um, Charles Masson. That's not his real name, his real name is James Lewis. I, I think he was a, a deserter from um, the British forces who took the wise decision to get out of British uh, jurisdiction as quickly as possible and spent a long time wandering around Afghanistan doing a really remarkable work, early work on um, Buddhist uh, remains in Afghanistan. Also collecting this coin collection, uh, which is uh, now mainly in the British Museum, I think. There's a, uh, a, an image of Barmyon by, a sketch image of Barmyon by Charles Masson. All his talents, he wasn't a very good draftsman. Now, I'll get back to Charles Masson and Alexander Burns in a, in a second. Charles Masson doesn't write nearly as well as Alexander Burns. What he does do, despite himself, is communicate his character in what he does write. And he's a very grumpy um, individual. Uh, he's easily irritated. That's one of the reasons I like him. Just like me. Um, and there's a wonderful moment when he's, he's visited the smaller Buddha. And he's discovered there's a, a staircase that goes up the side, on, up the left-hand side of the smaller Buddha. Goes over the top, takes it down the other side. Okay, so there is, a, there is an access point to the head of the Buddha, which is, makes perfect sense because that, that, that allows circumambulation, which is uh, a, a, a Buddhist ritual, which you would expect. But he goes to the larger Buddha and expects to find exactly the same thing. Uh, and he's convinced that there is um, a, uh, a staircase up the side. But instead, he, just, he walks into a cave and, and discovers that the householder of this cave, all these caves are, uh, are occupied, who refuses to let him through. Okay? The superior idol has all had the same facilities of the center summit, but the time of is the lower caves near it were occupied by an unaccommodating Tajik, Tajik who had stowed in the passages stock and prevent We could not prevail on him by menace or entreaty to open the path, and he invasively affirmed that he had never heard of one. What was happening to this? unaccommodating Tajik is a complete stranger was knocking on the door <laughs> speaking um, you know even worse worse person than I can I can imagine and saying I want to use your back door and the Tajik saying I don't have a back door you know there is no back way uh, that's the kitchen you know that's uh, um, and and and, and uh, uh, you know Burns in, 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 insists and eventually sort of leaves in an absolute half unbelievable <laughs> Um, he was just living in the cave and having back angels. Right. Okay. Um, Charles Masson and Alexander Burns. They are both spies as, as well. Um, Alexander Burns has sort of moved into spying quite happily. Um, Charles Masson's dubious status as a, uh, as a deserter means that he can be quite easily recruited by various, um, well, by one particular British uh, political officer to provide information from Kabul and from Afghanistan. So both of them are turned into spies, and uh, both of them become spies, and both of them then 
become part of the prehistory of the kind of physical intervention in Afghanistan, first physical intervention in, Afga in Afghanistan of the British, which is the first um, Afghan uh, war, in which Alexander Burns uh, is a the most prominent victim. He gets ripped apart in by a Kabuli mob, um, allegedly because he enjoyed the favours of Kabuli women uh, rather excessively, and that would certainly be true to his character. Okay, now, um, I said that um, the 1830s, 1840s were the time when the Buddhas of Bamiyan became particularly prominent in their sort of Western imaginary. This is when they sort of entered the Western imaginary. To some extent, that was because of people like um, Alexander Burns. He wrote a very uh, successful book, Travels into Bukhara, which took an, in which he described Buddhas of Bamiyan, um, amongst many other things. As successful as Travels into Bukhara were a couple of books written uh, a decade later by these two um, characters, Lady Sale on the left and Vincent um, Eyre on the other side. Now I said that only one person survived the massacre in the um, in the uh, uh, in the passes between Kabul and Jalalabad. That was never true, um, uh, never quite true. Um, one group who were rescued from that massacre, or a group of hostages who were taken. Um, in, amongst them officers and officers' families. Um, and they remained hostages for a period of months, and it's been said that their, that hostage <coughs> crisis developed the kind of prominence in uh, British public life and discourse that the hostage crisis in, in, in Tehran did in, um, in the States a couple of uh, a few decades ago. It was a, it was a cause for that. Um, and when they emerged from um, imprisonment, both Lady Sale and Vincent Eyre write accounts of, um, of, of their experiences. They both claim Lady Eyre, uh, Lady, no, Lady Eyre, she's somebody different. Lady Sale uh, claims with a slightly more plausibility that these are um, these are journals that she's been keeping whilst she's she's a hostage. Um, fascinating, um, fascinating stuff, and they sell like hotcakes, <coughs> huge, huge uh, hits. Um, Lady Sale, in particular, becomes a, a, a huge <coughs> celebrity. She's painted by everybody. I even found a, a wonderful account of um, a circus performance which sort of relived the, the, the hostage experience. And the highlight of it was when the figure playing uh, Lady Sale fought, single, fought a double sword fight with six Afghans and saw them all. Well, that's the kind of um, figure that she, she was. She had, had granddaughter, she had a granddaughter born to her in, in, in imprisonment as, as well. Her daughter was with her. Sorry, I should have said. Her daughter, who was a widow of John Stirk, the person that drew that image of um, Shari Zahar. Um, so the granddaughter of Lady Sale, the daughter of John Sturt, is born in Kabul and in prison. I found myself following up this person because I became so intrigued by her. Um, day before her 15th birthday, this poor girl's mother, this um, woman's daughter, was killed in the Indian mutiny. Um, and I was thinking, oh my God, she must have died as well at the age of 15. But no, she, she actually survives and dies, presumably in her bed, in 1910 in Wincanton, which is so far removed from where she was born. It's the strangest thing to see somebody in their senses living in Wincanton, place of birth, Kabul, Afghanistan, 1842. 
question. Okay, now I've been talking about come to the end um, here. I've been talking about how these statues, which were built by and for Buddhists, and of course represented um, Buddhist beliefs and Buddhist rituals when they first were created, were assimilated into later. Cultures. And the most important of those is the local culture, the culture of Hazrati uh, Ali and, uh, and Bandi Amir and, and so on. But it's fascinating to see what the British do with the Buddhas as well. Because what they're always, what anybody who encounters the Buddhas of Bamiya seems to experience is this sense of their remarkable quality. And thus, how essential it is that they have a, a significance that's commensurate with their wonderfulness. Um, so in a sense, what that chap I was talking about before, what Francis, Francis Wilford was doing, I mean, he was at the, at the crazy end of the, uh, of, the, um, of the spectrum. He's the one that thought that um, Shari Zahak was the, the Garden of Eden. Very influential, actually. The romantic poets loved Francis Wilford. But all he was really doing was he'd heard, nobody had been to Barmian, but he'd heard about Barmian. So it had to be an incredibly important place. Well, in a, by the time we get to the hostages being uh, taken hostage, eventually they are moved up to Bamiya as well. And by the time we um, get to them, it's a fairly familiar place, but there still remains this determination to make it mean something important. And this is where their training as classicists becomes very um, important. Because if there's anything significant in Afghanistan, what Europeans, not just British, are determined to do with it, it seems, is associated with the campaigns of Alexander. Alexander the Great is such an enormous and iconic um, figure in Europe, generally, but certainly within a sort of a classically trained group of people, that they are determined to find him uh, wherever they possibly uh, can. And they have the scope to find him because, in fact, we are in territory that Alexander did conquer, so this is, this is territory that did feature Critics, Curtis, and, and so on. So here we have Vincent Eyre, okay, and he's in a bad, bad way at this point. He's been taken up to Barmian, him and his, his wife, his child are in Barmian. Barmian is at the edge of Karpuli territory, so they're on the point of being taken over into sort of Balkh Mazar kind of area where they'll be saved and um, sold as slaves, basically. It's a terrible situation. But Vincent Eyre is pretty chirpy uh, at this point, um, and he's chirpy for good cultural reasons, I think. He's found his way to the head of the smaller um, Buddha, which everybody thinks is the woman. This is the, the local myths coming through. This is Sharma. Um, and well, I'll read it because he, he writes it better than I can explain it. While sitting on the lady's crown, enjoying a splendid view of the country, I was joined by some of the inhabitants who were very inquisitive to know what was written in our books concerning the place. I told them it was generally supposed Alexander the Great founded the city there. He goes on to say that these chaps who met him on the Head of the Buddha was saying, we'd much prefer it if the British were in charge than if Carpal uh, was in, in charge. We, we, we love you guys. So he's very, you know, he left the head of the Buddha on a very confirmed feeling about that. But of course, he thinks he's in a familiar place as well. He wants to believe he's in a familiar place. And most of the 19th century characters who go to Barmian share this view which has no basis, no decent basis in um, the sources or in archaeology or anything else that Alexander has a very close association with um, Bamiya. Not with the Buddhas directly, but with the place of, of Bamiya. 
Okay, I'll um, come to a conclusion here. But just to sort of round off that sort of Western response uh, to things. Um, we move into the 20th century, and two of my favourite 20th century archaeological types. This person, Jean Carl, was a member of the uh, French uh, archaeological mission in Afghanistan, which is most of the uh, excavation of Afghanistan in the 20th century. The Afghan government wanted to invite foreign ar archaeologists in, but had reached the rather wild conclusion that all British archaeologists were spies. <laughs> so went with the French instead. And here's uh, Jean Carl, and he's sort of abseiled down the larger Buddha. And he's just sort of standing there with his, with his ropes. What a tragic figure. He's, um, he's very close to a couple of other archaeologists at, um, at uh, Balmion. Um, the Hakan, the, when the, the Hakan, um, husband and wife were, were killed in um, 1941 serving the free French. He, he was in London discovered killed himself. He couldn't cope with, uh, without their companionship, I think. Um, yes, Oral Stein, different uh, um, kind of character indeed. His is a uh, tomb in the Foreign Cemetery in Kabul. Oral Stein is somebody who never went to Balmian, but my God, did he want to go to Balmian. He, he, Balmian was a place that had been on his wish list almost uh, uh, since his teenage years, um, I think. But he couldn't get into Afghanistan for the reasons that I've indicated, that the Afghan authorities didn't want um, too many British people there. Eventually, in 1943, he gets an invitation. And he has lots of plans of what to do in um, uh, Afghanistan. But then within a few days, catches he's 80 at this stage. He catches a cold and he, and he dies. Um, although claims to somebody um, as he's dying that he he wanted to go to Afghanistan for 60 years and he couldn't have died with that. He's there though because it's concentrating on Oral Stein to conclude. Uh, lovely, lovely individual, uh, Oral Stein. I'd love to talk about him at greater length. Oral Stein is somebody who's got a serious, serious Alexander fixation. You know, what, what takes him to Central Asia and eventually to um, Afghanistan in his you know, final days? is fundamentally a desire to trace the route of Alexander to see where Alexander went. And even up to his, even in his later years, he was doing, he was discovering precisely where Ornos was, you know, where this great fortress that Alexander um, um, captured was. Now, I've just given a very peculiar summary of Orlstein's life, because what Orlstein did was open up the remarkable culture of Central Asia. Um, he's the person that you know, found that image of um, uh, Athena at Nia in the Tarim basin. But he found so much more. He studied the, 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 the boundary of, of the Chinese Empire at various points. Found uh, remarkable Buddhist manuscripts in various locations in the Taklam Makam Desert and so on. So lots and lots of things which are nothing to do with Alexander at all. Um, now, it suited me that these people were getting all classical when they went to Afghanistan because I could see where they were coming from. And in my heart of hearts, I knew that that's what I had been doing in Afghanistan as well at some level. I'm not Alexander, but <coughs> something like, like that. But what I must insist on at the same time is that that European preoccupation with Alexander, which is shared by people like Jean Carl as well, it's clear from what they write about, is what makes this stuff as well understood as it now is. It what, it's what takes academics into these places and makes them investigate what is, what is there. Okay, thanks very much.
contextualization of the great Buddhas, uh, and I can say to the audience that I, I've had the advantage of reading Fulham's book, and it really is a vivid reconstruction and a fluent contextualization of the great Buddhas uh, in this incredibly rich history that you've sketched out now. So we've got a little time, maybe 20 minutes or so, for questions. Uh, so I think we'll take maybe two at a time and uh, pass over to... Yes, so, yeah, yeah. so yes, please, later. Uh, I, I have a question about the coin that you showed us. Yes. Um, on one side, the coin was written in Greek, but on the other side, if I'm not mistaken, yeah. I recognize some... Hebrew or Aramaic characters. It, you, nearly, at any rate. Yes, yes, yes. yes. I, can, I can talk uh, about that. So yeah. I wanted to ask, like, what's the uh, what's the relation of that to that area? Mm -hmm. And secondly, my other question was, how did that gentleman Yahya Al Bermaki mm -hmm. end up in the Abbasi court? Was he taken as a as a slave or came to work? How did he end up in the court? Yeah, thank you. That's a very good question. Uh, we'll take a couple, I think. Any more questions? Yes, please. Mm -hmm. um, I just have a question on uh, some more recent uh, history and um, legends, I suppose, about the, uh, the Buddhas. Um, I was there in October with the uh, New Zealand PRT, ah. and the, um, when, when we were there, uh, we, were, we were traveling around Bamiyan, just uh, checking the uh, police, actually the AMP, the Afghan, Afghan National Police Force. But um, the, uh, a lot of the rumors we heard is that they, uh, everyone believed that a third reclining, or sorry, a third large Buddha had been sure. found um, buried underground, and that this was because of a, um, the legend. Um, some people said it was from Ali, that they said that um, when Bamiyan will be under a great duress at some point in its future, that it will be this new um, behemothic uh, figure will be revealed um, at a time of great duress. And that the Bamiyanis were saying that this is because uh, Parwan um, in neighboring provinces were falling to the insurgency. Uh, and basically, as Bamiyan was, so it was coming through, coming through. I just thought it was an interesting uh, aspect of the uh, modern day, kind of latter day um, uh, growth of the legend of, of yeah. the Buddhas. Yes. Mm -hmm. You might stand up for the show. Yeah. Um, um, no, great. Um, can I just. I'll take that one first, and then come back to the to, to the coin. Um, I think what's that's it's very fascinating because what's happening there is um, the sort of archaeological uh, activity that's happening in Bamiyan, kind of feeding into sort of local ideas. Because there's this uh, chap, um, uh, uh, this archaeologist Tazi, um, who's who's Afghan but is now based in uh, in France, who's been sort of searching for this larger Buddha, and the the source of the information about this very large uh, Buddha is actually in the account of Tuan Sun, which I, I didn't quote the relevant bit, but he goes on to say, and there's a, just <laughs> passing, um, and there's a, an, uh, within this uh, monastery there is a Buddha that is a thousand feet long, right, 300 meters long, and this has excited lots and lots of people, where could it possibly be? Uh, I, I'm afraid to, to spoil everything, I think it's just a mistake in the text, basically, and it's an extra lot or, or something. Um, but I think what's very fascinating about what's happening with the Buddhas in Bamiyan at present is the way it's being used by, the way a sort of a local identity is being forged in relation to the Buddhas. I've seen sort of um, videos on on YouTube of, of kind of you know sort of music associated with Bamiyan, sort of made by local Bamiyanis that makes a great deal of um, 
Japanese reconstructions of the, of the Buddha and that kind of thing. I think it's great. I mean, I think the, the, the sooner there can be um, a really close identification by the local population with the still remarkable archaeological stuff that, there is to, that has been found and continue, will continue to be found in Birmingham, the, the, the better. I must have bumped into one of your colleagues at some time in the cafe just near Charlotte Zahar. We had a conversation, I can't remember what her name was. She was quite, she was quite sceptical. Was this a New Zealand date? Yeah, Paris? Yes, absolutely. Yes. Skeptical is the word, obviously. Small world, obviously. Irish police officers around there as well. Uh, yeah, no, um, <laughs> the six Irish police officers. I didn't know that. I didn't meet that. Okay. Were you one of the. No, I was there with the foreign ministry, actually. Okay. Yeah. Very strange place. Um, <laughs> it's, I mean, it is peculiar what, what happens in, in these uh, places. The first time I flew into Barmian, I climbed on a, a UN fighter. And this incredibly bright Canadian, uh, sort of eighteen-year-old, who was who was the um, uh, who was sort of welcoming on on board, well, to welcomed us on board. It was complete in the middle of a war zone, but that was that was this sort of person who just came straight from Vancouver. Mm, very well. Right. Okay. Anyways, it's going to 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 save your territory. The coin. Uh, yeah. Yeah. This is um, a script called um, Horosti, and it is related to Aramaic. Uh, yes. What's um, what's um, the, the language that's uh, expressed by Grossi is, is Bactrian, which is a kind of a local um, Iranian language. Um, now, um, so there's no there's no um, sort of Hebrew uh, connection here. However, um, I, I was just reading something the other day actually by a, um, a very important scholar of um, Afghanistan, a guy called Jonathan Lee, who's done some very Important um, stuff. Some very courageous stuff in sort of rescuing um, artifacts in Afghanistan under the Taliban and other times. He's got a particular interest in the Jewish history of Afghanistan, which is a, a you know not a, not something which gets a great deal of prominence. Um, but just recently, um, there's been lots of evidence of a large cache of um, Jewish documents which have been found in Afghanistan, and like a lot of artifacts, have just been gone straight out to Peshawar and then out into the into the uh, art market. So they're now more likely to be in this city than uh, than in um, Afghanistan. Um, indications, uh, you know, not surprising indications of quite how um, strong uh, the Jewish presence in Afghanistan was at various times in the Ghurid capital at. Um, Cool, where there's a wonderfully entitled monument, the Minaret of Jam, um, Jam, um, uh, which is a great centre of, uh, of power in the middle of the mountains um, until roughly when Genghis Khan came through and broke it up. Lots of um, Perso-Judaic Judaic, uh, tombstones have survived, so it was clearly a very uh, thriving Jewish community in, um, in the capital of, of the Hurlis. Well, absolutely. You know, it's a it's a it's a melting pot indeed. Spencer. Yes, question. Yeah, please on down to the. Oh, and what about the vizier? Oh yeah, how did he get there? Yeah, sorry. Well, no, very interesting. I mean, in detail, we what we have is um, not very likely accounts in the uh, Islamic sources. I mean, accounts that 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 say it the way um, the Barmakids would like it to be known. What one. I mean, what one can say is that the the Barmak, the, the the abbot, the sort of great ancestor, um, 
accepted the new dispensation at a pretty critical moment. He converted to Islam and, uh, and did so controversially, but, but definitely uh, with an eye on the future. He could see the, which way it was going. And being in charge of a monastery like um, Balch, I may not have made clear how significant a position this was. This made this character the most, one of the most, very most important figures in what is now northern Afghanistan. Terribly wealthy, a terribly significant individual. So exactly the kind of person that would um, come into the administration of a larger Arabic um, uh, empire. Uh, you know, given its commitment to, um, to you know, to, to to using the talents of the whole empire. So I don't think we, you know, there's no, no suggestion that he was sort of clapped in irons and dragged off to, to Baghdad. He went there quite uh, willingly. Um, I don't know if anybody saw the incredibly exquisite exhibition Afghanistan at the British Museum last year. Mm -hmm. Just absolutely eye and, and mind opening. I mean, if you didn't know anything about contemporary Afghanistan, you would never imagine this country being so war torn. Um, my question is. Uh, Back to uh, Bamyan, the still image of this blast on the side, it looks like a man's head being blown apart. It's almost kind of the brain being taken out on the side. Yeah, if you look just towards the right of it, for me, there's this kind of a silhouette there. Oh, right, yeah. well, there you go. It really, <laughs> literally, to me, that's what hit me, is, is a man's head being blown up. Um, I'm curious uh, about, um, I've, I've not been to Afghanistan, and I'm not quite sure whether I want to go there straight away. Uh, in your travels and experiences there, what do, what do ordinary people actually think about um, Bamiyan now, beyond the historical, religious, and ideological conflicts? Do they care, or do they think, well, it's just how it is? And it's, that, 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 is um, that was always, for me, the uh, $6 million question, really, is how to how to access that kind of raw opinion uh, about, about things. And that's sort of why I was saying what I was saying before. I get the impression that locally, at any rate, there's, a, there's a, a, an intense pride in what there is there. Uh, and in many ways, a kind of a, a, a re paradoxically kind of rejuvenated pride after the destruction of the, the Buddha. Now, what I really wanted to know um, was, as I put it to... <laughs> Early in this project, I wrote emails, which I feel incredibly embarrassed about, because, partly because I never got responses, but to various, um, and for good reason, to various people who'd been in Afghanistan in the 60s and 70s, saying, you know, from your experience of being in Afghanistan in the 60s and 70s, what did people think about what the archaeologists were doing in Afghanistan? So what did the man on the street in Mazar Sharif think about this stuff? As I never got any response from these very senior academics. Um, one of whom is speaking in the city in a few days' time, I might go along and stab him in the chest. I mean, it might be, of course, it probably is, because it's, it's a stupid question. How can you possibly, um, how can you possibly answer that? One, I mean, one person I quote at some length in, in the book is um, uh, a remarkable individual, um, the, the so-called frontier Gandhi, uh, Ghaffar Khan, who was um, a kind of an important... Um, uh, campaigner for, for, for Indian independence um, who, who was closely allied with Gandhi and also sort of opposed to the foundation of two separate 
the states, Pakistan and India. He wanted one state, but he also, I mean, simultaneously he wanted a one India, but he also wanted special um, recognition of his people, the Pashtuns. So he was a, a Pashtun. He is. He makes a lot of the archaeology of Afghanistan and the and the Buddhism, particular when he's when he's sort of, as it were, talking up Afghanistan, which he sort of blends in interesting ways with Pashtunistan, with the area controlled by Pashtuns, which is a dangerous area to start talking about probably. Nevertheless, I mean, as far as he's concerned, it's that depth of history, or that depth of history is a great source of pride to him. Now, he's, a, he's not typical of anything. Um, he's certainly not the man on the street in Peshawar or Jalalabad or anything like that. Um, I've spoken to people who've expressed great dismay at what happened in Bamiyan, but I couldn't possibly claim that that was a general response. It, it, it's stumbling, and it's, it's, a, it's a sign of how difficult this question is, but how important it is at the same time. We have Taliban on record saying at the time they thought that Omar had lost his mind by destroying these, these things, which you know might suggest something, but I, I'd hesitate to be too clear about it. Uh, that sort of relates to my question was that I always understood that the edict of Mullah Omar had very little to do with Islam and more to do with political maneuverings at the time and also the relationship with how they were perceived by the international community and the UN and then UNESCO's reaction to threats and um, uh, is there more you could say about that? Well no I think you've, 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 you've said it that um, that, I mean, one of the things that makes us think that um, that, that, that foreign influence, uh, you know, um, uh, by um, people like um, Bin Laden was was relevant here as uh, elsewhere in Afghanistan at this this time, is that the destruction of the Buddhists doesn't seem a very Taliban-y thing to do. I mean, the Taliban is a was is was. I mean, it's constantly changing, of course, but was at that stage at any rate um, a very um, parochial movement, you know, it was about Afghanistan. It wasn't wasn't that it didn't care about the, the wider global community. It didn't really think in it now, it didn't think about the wider global community. And and what you're um, looking at in the destruction of the Buddhas is something that is so obviously media related and, and global. You know, this is something that will get images across the world, will get attention across the world. And as such, it looks so much like uh, an Al-Qaeda spectacular. Uh, in practice, it doesn't prove anything, but in practice it was a very major recruiting tool. So in the, in the month after the destruction of the Buddhas, the, the number of um, foreign um, jihadists that were going to Afghanistan went uh, you know. um, And of course it had the other impact, which um, Bin Laden was rather on this superb article in the New Statesman by Olivier at some point, uh, who was uh, just after, well, at some point, it was just after Bin Laden was killed, talking about him as an, above all other things, an actor, an actor for modern media, somebody who was just brilliant at staging stuff that would really get attention. And that strikes me as exactly what the British Rebellion were, were about. Yeah, um, and they, you know, anybody who did want to get attention would know that they would get attention because we're so aware of these sort of the UNESCO and these uh, foreign archaeologists who are there in Afghanistan 
who we're constantly talking about, and with the best, um, you know, with the, with the best intentions, we must preserve the archaeology. But I, I think it's, somebody wanted to cause mischief amongst Westerners in relation to Afghanistan would associate Westerners with an obsession with the archaeology, and that's what they would go for. And that's what they'd go for. Any more questions? Lady in the middle. I was interested in what you said about Islam incorporating the Buddhas into its own sphere, if you like, mm -hmm. quite happily. Um, an academic whose name completely escapes me at the moment uh, talked about the difference between uh, the West and the East, by which he meant uh, the West, Europe, and the kind of Christian influence, mm -hmm. and the East being Islam. Uh, basically. And he saw the difference as being the Western Christian influence has incorporated um, the past into itself, but that that past still exists for it. So for example, the Hebrew scriptures are very much part of the Christian tradition. And the Romans saw themselves as, uh, saw the Greeks as important for their um, for their understanding of themselves and didn't want to get rid of that past but wanted to actually see themselves in a line as it were. He described it as um, dwarfs standing on the shoulders of giants. Mm -hmm. Whereas he thought of Islam as taking from the past and then discarding it. So in the sense that Islam has taken some uh, biblical stories <laughs> and accommodated them into the, its own framework and then left behind what was in what was in those stories as something no longer useful to it because it's taken what it needed from it. Mm -hmm. I wondered what you thought of that in relation to what you'd said well, about it's, the Buddhas. I mean, it's, it's very interesting. I wouldn't, I wouldn't attempt to, to, to on, the, on the spot, to theorise as, as, as broadly as, as that um, um, person has. There are there are very interesting ways in which the Christian tradition does and does not assimilate the classical world, um, for example. So it, it, um, and, and those are very different from the ways in which um, the Islamic world, in my limited experience in Birmingham, has, has sort of made sense of of, um, of of Birmingham. And there may be a sense in which um, the Christian way of doing it which isn't necessarily very comfortable, but sort of maintains, as it were, a chronological extent in a way that Islam does less. Islam sort of manages a, a more um, thorough assimilation of things, perhaps. But I would be uncomfortable and, more importantly, utterly unqualified to, to generalise from, from, from just from Bong. It's in, I mean, one assumes that assumes that Islam and Christianity and um, Judaism have far more in common than generally they, they're inclined to accept as their Abrahamic religions, but there will be differences in the way that they sort of um, cope with the past and deal with the past and maintain what everyone, as it were, regards as valuable from the past. There will be differences, whatever those, whatever those are. Question I was just wondering if you could tell us a bit more about the current archaeology and excavation work that's going on. 
Um, and excuse me if this sounds like a stupid question, but what are the plans for that going forward? I mean, are there plans to reconstruct the Buddhas or to create some kind of formalised cultural heritage centre? Sure, sure. They're, they're, they're far from um, stupid uh, questions. Um, yes, yeah, so um, as I sort of indicated when I was um, talking, the um, one of the sort of paradoxes of things um, in Barmyan since 2001 is that it's had world attention. Um, and that means that a lot of money has been um, um, available to um, to excavate in Bamiyan. One of the things that irritates um, archaeologists of other parts of Afghanistan, apart from Bamiyan, like the person I mentioned before, Jonathan Lee, is that all the attention, all the money goes to Bamiyan, <laughs> not, uh, not to other places. And UNESCO is very concentrated on, on Bamiyan. Um, now, the consequence of this, or the consequences of this, yeah, there's been lots of um, uh, very interesting excavations in, in uh, Bamiyan by this um, French-Afghan archaeologist um, Tazi, um, also by Japanese um, archaeologists. Um, Bamiyan has a, a sort of a role in in the Japanese imaginary that's entirely unrelated to the role it has in the in the European imaginary, and I haven't mentioned it at all, which is scandalous, but it's very, very fascinating. And it's in practical terms, it's it's um, it's involved a huge uh, commitment of resources by Japan to preservation and the um, uh, excavation of Bamiyan. So yeah, lots of uh, interesting stuff has been uh, found. The remains of um, monasteries that go much, much earlier, for example. Um, so um, survivals of, of monasteries and monastic. Um, uh, sculptures and things which take the record of Bamiyan back to perhaps the about um, 300 even 200 um, AD and suddenly you find yourself looking at very Greek um, moulding styles, you know, so representations of Buddhas or generally what survives of Buddhas feet um, lower cloak but very very sort of, the, the Greek influence is still um, discernible there by the time you get to the Buddhas of Bamiyan it's, it's, it's pretty passing, although when Swan Sung went to Bamiyan, they weren't speaking Greek or anything like that, they were still writing their language in Greek script, which is a rather strange strange idea um, so that's ongoing um, everything depends on um, security and Bamiyan is um, by far the safest place in Afghanistan at present, I wouldn't have visited if it hadn't been um, if it remains secure, and that's a very, very big if indeed, yes, they're talking about building a museum where some of the remarkable things they found during uh, the study of the fragments of the Buddha uh, could, could go. I mean, for example, they found votive offerings that were sort of hidden within the structure of the smaller Buddha in particular, so presumably put there when the Buddha was first um, uh, consecrated, not found in the rubbish at the bottom. Um, so uh, that would would be uh, on display. As far as reconstructing the Buddhas are concerned, there are certain people who would um, who are quite passionate that at least one of them should be reconstructed. The smaller Buddha is is probably in a better condition to be reconstructed than the larger Buddha. There are plenty of people who are equally equally passionately opposed to reconstruction of the Buddhas because they think it would be inevitably look cheap and tawdry, and anyway, the empty niches are a powerful monument in themselves. Probably a halfway uh, compromise could be reached there, but we are talking about a colossal expenditure of 
money to reconstruct it in the small of Buddha. Um, tens of millions of pounds. And I cannot imagine any circumstance where it would make sense uh, to spend that money on a reconstruction of a monument in an area of Afghanistan which is you know, poor by Afghan um, So nothing, nothing very likely to happen. Well, well, ladies and gentlemen, we're just about out of time. We have time for just one last question. Lady Zavi. Last question. Now, just a quick um, thought on the political aspect. You mentioned Al Qaeda, how it was. Uh, clear that this was something to be seen outside and you have to look at the relationship of al-qaeda and pakistan at the time where al-qaeda was based and how afghanistan became a battlefield between pakistan and india uh, so one can argue that this has a lot less to do with islam mm -hmm. in fact in islam you cannot worship any um, images not only even islamic images no. So it has to do more with the political situation there and the, the battlefield that Afghanistan. And anyway, my question is if you found on your research any other signs of Christianity before the arrival of the British uh, in the region? Ooh, in uh, not, um, no. Um, <laughs> I can tell you, a, I can give you an anecdote, um, perhaps. Um, there's a, a remarkable um, character called Joseph Wolfe. Um, who travels through Bamiyan in the uh, 1830s. He's, uh, well, he's he mad as a brush, um, really, is one way of putting it. He's, he's searching for the, the lost tribes. Uh, he's a, he's um, a German Jew who converted to Catholicism and then converted to the Church of England. Um, um, and then um, heads off to convert the, the infidels, basically, and he spends a lot of time in, in Bukhara, which is a very dangerous place to be. Um, just north of um, Bamiyan, um, he was trying to explain, to, I mean, he was, a, he was a reverend, he was trying to explain to local people what he was, and he, his companions had referred to him as Hadji. Okay. He got into serious trouble north of um, Bamiyan because some people wanted to insist on the literal meaning of Hadji, that, being, uh, that, he, yeah, that he was uh, a Muslim and had been, on the, uh, been to, to Mecca. Um, they almost killed him. I think they were going to burn him alive or something like that. Um, what they in fact did was strip him of all his clothes. Um, and he describes with a certain um, missionary zeal um, uh, how he, 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 as he moved through Barmian, he was completely naked. He just walked through <coughs> Barmian. Um, yes, so in his case, I think not much understanding of, of Christianity available. I don't think that there is... I mean, beyond what Oral Stein and others have found in Central Asia, evidence of Nestorian uh, Christianity um, sort of existing across that. It's, it has been there. There has been Christianity. But within um, uh, Islamic cultures, um, before they started encountering, encountering the British, very little uh, indeed, I think. I, I, your earlier point, of, of course, the, the, the politics of this are, are terribly... Uh, complicated, and you know, one of the ways in which the destruction of the Buddhas was justified was as payback for what has happened at Ayodhya, which is earlier earlier point. So uh, there are all kinds of different matrices into which this 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 event. Sadly, I think that's all we have time for. But uh, thank you very much for coming, for joining, thanking Dr.